Welcome to Talks News, a poor dumb rebellion broadcast. I guess I had my mic muted that whole time because I am the worst podcaster there ever is. Thank you for joining me on uh, Talks News. It is I, the wacko weirdo rebel scum Jedi hero, here to speak to you today about the wonderful world of right-wing narratives, the never-ending carousel, echo chamber, house of mirrors, and when the music ends, that means the stream begins. Catch it on Twitch at Talk Streaming. So, what do we have for you today? Well, our main highlight is the Tim Pool meeting of Ben Shapiro on the Ben Shapiro podcast. Very special occasion, I think. Especially during Million MAGA March weekend. Uh, yesterday was a eventful day for MAGA supporters and anti-fascist activists um, who met in the streets of Washington, D.C., and there have been plenty of videos going around of the violent uh, interactions that were going on. And, of course, that also means that Andy No begins to trend because he spends a lot of his time posting during these uh, street altercations between uh, one street fighting gang against another the world's uh not the world but america's pretty complicated we we do have fascists in america and uh we then have anti-fascists who go to counter their movements uh as it was written in the history books um you know i think the easiest access for most people is to get the antifa handbook by mark bray uh, that 
goes over the history of some anti-fascist organizations around the whole wide world. Um, America is going through its own fascist phase. Um, you know, we can say it's just a phase, but uh, as George Carlin uh, had said on what show? I can't remember. I think it was on Bill Maher's show. But uh, America won World War Two. Uh, but fascist, what was it? Democracy defeated in Germany. It was something like that. Like democracy defeated Germany, uh, but fascism won the war. Uh, or it was America defeated Germany, but fascism ended up winning because I don't know. We took in a lot of uh, information from Germany as they did from us with our, you know, our whole thing of segregation. They took our Jim Crow laws and applied it to their Jewish civilians, and then we learned from them of, you know, how to keep a society organized. So, what I'm looking at here, Andy No spreading some information about a street fight that I don't have necessarily enough information on, but it, as videos come out, it seems like the altercation, um, although heated, does seem consensual between the people who uh, threw punches. So I'm not sure if I can necessarily feel sympathy for the guy who is pushing everybody around um, just because one sucker punch laid him out flat. Um, Miss Mrs. Krasenstein says here that warning, loser, and intention whore Andy No is sharing selectively edited videos to incite violence. Mr. Andy No should be arrested and charged immediately. Who agrees? Um, there's been a lot that Andy No has done that maybe should have warranted these kind of actions earlier. He has, uh, doxxed activists and journalists to the point of ending up on kill lists for far right-wing militia groups. That is a thing. Andy No is a character in America, um, and one that we will have to keep an eye on, especially as he's trending on Twitter with 80k. 80k. Um, Trump seems to has President Trump seems to have uh, retweeted Andy No's uh, video, the edited video, and let's see if we go to Trump's Twitter. He has spent the weekend. Oh, why didn't it just come up with his account? Scrolling down. I'm looking for two specific tweets that I had seen. Well, today he's focusing on the election again. It says, uh, he only won in the eyes of the fake news media. I concede nothing. We have a long way to go. This was a rigged election. So Donald Trump doing pretty great at coping with his loss. Um, the tweet before that was rigged election. We will win. All caps. So today Trump's focusing on that. But yesterday during the Million MAGA March and all the street violence, where was it? Where was he at? Do -do -do -do. Did he delete them? I don't think he deleted them. He just tweets so much. Hold on. Yeah, I'm not seeing those tweets. There it is. There it is. Let's see, if it was 15 hours ago, that's... See, 24 hours would be nine hours from now. We had nine. 
So minus nine hours from now. Really? That would have been really early in the morning. Hmm. What? Let's see. No, it was at night. It was at night. Just just as night started to take over. Yeah, my math was a little bit off. I couldn't figure out if I was supposed to go backward or forwards in time when I was figuring this out. It was just a little bit back. Anyways, uh, Donald Trump at 9.17 p.m. during the protests says, and I quote, Antifa scum ran for the hills today when they tried attacking the people at the Trump rally because those people aggressively fought back. Antifa waited until tonight when 99% were gone to attack innocent MAGA people. DC police get going. Do your job and don't hold back. Uh, Bo of the fifth column, check out his YouTube, came in and said, nope. The people you ordered to stand down and stand by didn't listen. If you can't command them, what makes you think you can command the military? Um, it's, I don't know. With the emails that had come out, it seems like Trump was actually asking for people to fight back, ambiguously also saying, hey, we're, we need five bucks from every patriot in order to continue with our lawsuits. But the, all, the, the fight back part of those emails stuck out to me as if he was kind of doing like a dog whistle call to action. So an hour later after that Antifa scum running for the hills, uh, Trump said radical left Antifa scum was easily rebuffed today by the big DC MAGA rally crowd, only to return at night after 99% of the crowd had left to assault elderly people and families. Police got there, but late. Mayor is not doing her job. So, uh, before, during, and, well... Not necessarily before, but during and after the violence had begun in Washington, D.C. between fascists and anti-fascists, um, Donald Trump uh, decided to show his partisan lines. Uh, maybe because Antifa is actually against Trump. I wonder why. But that is kind of where we're at right now as far as the election and the culture wars go. I just think that little brief summary can give people a bit of a taste of like, well, how's America doing? Well, <laughs> we're right here. We're right here uh, with the president uh, really demonizing uh, the enemy of uh, actual fascist uh, street gangs. The Proud Boys are, are a street gang. I don't think they would actually admit to being a um, militant group, but they definitely, uh, would say that there's some kind of organization, and it seems like they're kind of a bit fight clubby. They're, they're a fight club, basically. Um, so, but, you know, overall down, deep down, their, like, ideology sits in a neo-fascist realm within America, um, very ultra-nationalist, um, not very working class pro, but they do seem to play that populism idea that they're for the blue collar man and his rights and all of that right wing libertarian nonsense. But really deep down, it's neo fascism because it still works on the anti left and demonization of other. Uh, it still works on that realm. And Trump demonized their enemies in order to rally his base into violence in the streets. And Andy No then uh, does his job where he uh, characterizes through 
video edits and uh, his method of journalism into uh, creating caricatures of quote unquote Antifa to create that, um, I don't know, homogenous boogeyman that everybody can point a finger at, just like, you know, BLM and Antifa. And soon they will merge into one as Blamtifa. All right. I don't know if you guys, if you guys can tell, but this is definitely my best podcast ever. So that's where we're at in America, hating each other and loving um, the PS5, I guess, because the PS5 dropped uh, just recently and everybody's getting their hands on them except for me. <laughs> uh, and I was going to get a Series X anyways when I can, but just going to chill with my 1S until... Uh, uh, I don't know what it, richer days until richer days. Um, but until then we still continue on here on talks news to talk about what the right wing is talking about, because I think what is important, uh, is to understand the narratives and the world perspectives that others live in. I know mine. I'm well aware of mine. I get my sources from right here inside my cranium, but sometimes I need to step outside of my circle and take in, uh, the, the alternative view, if you will. And, you know, these people have completely different upbringings than I do. And that has a lot to do with the policies that we're going to support or uh, fight against. So, why do I say all of that? Well, because two of the biggest conservatives have come together, who I've covered multiple of their videos, for one great adventurous agenda. Tim Pool showed up on Ben Shapiro's podcast. And what I find incredibly fascinating about this right here is that Tim Pool is obviously uh, doing the podcast remotely from his compound because he refuses to leave. Sasha, what? No, you gotta lay down. Sasha, you gotta lay down. That's a fair point. You gotta lay down. You lay down. Good girl. You lay down. That's a fair point, but you gotta lay down right now. It's good girl. Sasha, you gotta lay down. Sorry, my friend's dog is acting up a little bit. This is enthralling podcast, but I like to keep it raw. Keep it real. I'm sorry, Sasha. Train of thoughts never meant to actually reach their destination, are they? But Tim Pool and Ben Shapiro have been two commentators that I have uh, watched on this channel many of a time. And so I'm excited today that they're on one show. Sasha, you gotta lay down. Lay down, Sasha. That's a good girl. might not happen um but it's pretty great uh tim pool uh still remained at his compound which uh, you know apparently is pretty cool i just find it very interesting because vosh uh, another commentator on youtube actually had to uh go to tim pool's compound in order to do their uh session but for ben shapiro he's willing to just pop in <laughs> so it's uh he, tim pool's obviously doing it remotely 
So I thought that was interesting that he set those terms for people who wanted to debate him to actually have to travel out to where he lives. But for a conversation with Ben Shapiro, oh, we can just do it remotely. It's cool. So that's where we're at right now. Um, follow uh, Donald Trump on Twitter, Andy No on Twitter, if you want to see um, just, you know, the, the right wing perspective of left wing activism. Uh, I don't like it, but it's out there. And here we are, Tim Pool, Ben Shapiro, hitting many topics, the whole right-wing agenda, right before our very eyes, coming to millennial skulls near you. Let's get it. Tim Pool, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I know this has been long awaited on the interwebs, this, this final, final confrontation. So well, let's, let's talk about what's going on in the world right now. Uh, obviously, aside from the fact that everybody is still locked in their basement because of COVID, which we'll get to, uh, we're still in the middle of an election. Uh, this, this has been declared over by the media. The media have said that this thing is over. Not only have they declared that Joe Biden is the president-elect, they have declared that anybody who refuses to call him the president-elect, even though he's not actually yet the president-elect, uh, is engaged in some sort of coup. What do you make of all of this? I mean, he is uh, the president-elect because the Electoral College has called uh, every state who has called out. Um, Trump is going through litigation lawsuits to see if through recounts or... I don't know if he can either recounts or banning votes. He's there's multiple legislation going on right now. Litigation, I guess, is the word, not legislation. But there's multiple lawsuits and uh, court filings that Trump is working on in for in order to try and flip uh, some states. But he would have to get significant amount of states to actually flip the election results. So unless the election results are flipped, they have been resulted. So that means that Joe Biden is the projected president-elect he is the president-elect through the electoral college with 290 electoral votes that's what it takes to be elected president um that doesn't mean that trump can't do his thing with the lawsuits and litigation and getting investigations done um republicans say it's well within his rights uh i haven't seen anybody say that it's it's not i see people saying that it's not fair for him or you know oh he's trying to you know, I I honestly thought it was going to be more like a coup, but um, it just doesn't seem to like be going necessarily in Trump's favor so far. So until like there's like some serious evidence and developments, we're actually probably not going to see any type of, uh, I don't know, shenanigans from Trump so much as he is just focusing on rhetoric and propaganda for right wing culture war. Um but until then, like, yeah, the election is pretty much called. Joe Biden is the president-elect. But we have to see uh, still how Trump is going to transition. If he's not going to transition, then it might actually lead to a point where he has to be escorted out from the White House. I'm not 100% sure how that would happen because it's a bit unprecedented in America. So the right-wing media is claiming that the media, and what Ben Shapiro now calls the legacy media, um, they're claiming that the, the right wing is claiming that the legacy calling the election for Joe Biden is an official, even though what they're calling out is the news from the electoral college, from the electoral process. Yeah, and it just kind of even feeds to the whole thing that Trump really built upon was the fake news media, building distrust between news outlets, journalists, and uh, people. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a tradition that the media would say, Hey, here's the winner it's projected. And they just go along with it. 
But I think it's kind of a millennial bias. We're so used to seeing these elections, aside from Bush v. Gore, where the results are kind of clear. You know, Mitt Romney didn't get nearly enough votes, so he just says, okay, I concede. But this is a really, really close race. I mean, we're, we're within recount of uh, uh, numbers for certain states. Georgia just announced a hand recount. So it's not necessary. We're in certain close races in numbers. Numbers. Yeah, they are like thousands of votes. Um, but is the amount of uh, the question is, is if he flipped Georgia, would he win? No. Would he if he flipped Georgia and Pennsylvania, would he win? No. If he flipped Georgia, Pennsylvania and Arizona. No, he would have to flip a lot of these swing states. And sure, maybe some are within thousands, but others are within hundreds of thousands and others are just too high for him. I don't know the numbers exactly. But I know Tim Pool doesn't either, because he just said that a lot of states are close within numbers. Very vague, but it keeps the dream alive. It doesn't really make sense to say Joe Biden won when there's a legal process you know, happening. Several states are too close to call still. I, the media has just decided, this is it, Joe Biden won, it's over. Meanwhile, I think they're starting to wake up to the fact that Trump has... I, I think he actually has a legal path to victory. There was an article put out by Vox uh, recently showing all the ways that Trump is still planning on taking this to court, maybe disqualifying certain votes, maybe getting a, a, a victory through the Electoral College by having Republicans at the state level certify their own electors. So Trump's certainly not out of this. And it, I got to tell you, it's kind of weird seeing these two different realities where you have one media apparatus saying President-elect Joe Biden announces his COVID plans. Then you see another one saying, Donald Trump is in court right now challenging, you know, the, the results in certain states or uh, impropriety at a certain level. So it's it's almost like they're trying to tell us Joe Biden won to convince us because it's not over. Certification hasn't happened for the states yet, let alone for the, the you know, the, the election as a whole and then choosing the electors. The level of hysteria to me is the thing that, that really stands out. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Basically addicts. The, the Donald what? What? <laughs> Um, what does he mean certification? Because is he just talking about the whole legal litigation process that Trump has to go through? Because that could even go in uh, past January 21st, depending on how many uh, flimsy cases Trump can pull off. You know, Trump can continue bringing up lawsuits so long as he has the money to do so. Donald Trump is their cocaine, and, and they can't let go of it, and so they, they, they require... Just this constant addiction that they require a constant supply of, of chaos. I also think there, there's something else going on here too, which is they keep saying Wait. That Trump is about to. If Trump is like literally the one making all the news from his actions, isn't he the one that's actually creating chaos? And the news media is simply like Trump is the cook of the cocaine. He he's the producer of the cocaine, and the media is merely just the dope man delivery dude. He's they're they're the dealer. Um. That was a bad metaphor, to be perfectly honest with you, because I don't think uh, the media is necessarily uh, on Trump cocaine as much as they are just on sensationalized news cocaine, because it's it's ratings. Ratings are their cocaine. Um, yeah.
participate in a coup, that let's say the electors vote for Joe Biden, he's going to hole up in the Oval Office like Al Pacino at the end of Scarface. He's going to be doing blow and firing guns through the door and while shouting, say hello to my little friend. And I, I think this has much more to do with the media's pathological need to paint Trump as Hitler so they can do whatever they want than it does with reality. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I will say when I, I think it was Michael Moore who said it a while ago, Trump's not going to leave even if he loses. And I was like, get out of here. That's ridiculous. I mean, I think right now what's happening is they're they're putting forth this media narrative. The election's over so they can now be like, see, look, he's not leaving, even though the election's over when it's not. But I, I, I will say Trump's taken some actions. It appears that he's not planning on leaving. This could just be because he's going through the legal process. And until all of his legal uh, you know, tactics have played out, he's going to operate as though he's going to get elected. But I do think at this point, the idea that, there's, yeah, like you mentioned, Trump's going to be locked in the Oval Office, the Secret Service is going to kick the door in is just ridiculous. But at this point, I got to be honest, I'm ready to believe anything. You know, just the amount of absurdity we've seen throughout 2020. We're in a, we're in a global pandemic. They're starting to lock down different states now. So maybe it really is just going to be the craziest election we've ever seen in our lives. But I don't know. I feel like life is more boring than that. So. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think that one of the things that, that we find out the more we're into the political sphere is that politics is a lot less like House of Cards and a lot more like Veep. That, that <laughs> there's this assumption on the part of people who are outside the world of politics that people know what they're doing, that there are these very sophisticated plans, and that people have thought three steps down the road and they're all playing 4D chess. And it turns out that just like in every other industry, when you hit the top of the industry, you realize that everybody's an idiot just like you. Uh, and that, that is pretty yep. much, I, I think, how it works in politics. Yeah, especially I, I think when I was younger, I was talking about I would guess so. But I don't think that's how like intelligence operations operate. I don't really think that's actually how Democratic parties operate. I think for most part, business is very short sighted with their uh, uh, profiting because they want short term profits. You know, if they spend $10 million today to make $100 million um, down the line, but $50 million is tomorrow then they're going to probably take the 50 tomorrow and then the 50 the next day and so long as the short term is there then you know corporations are willing to go down that route but um political action especially with how joe biden says it's a slow process um of incremental changes i don't know overall it just seems like political processes are a bit more focused on the long-term goals whereas uh also, probably the same thing with intelligence agencies, and I don't know how much games they play. <laughs> you know, that's a that's another whole conspiracy rabbit hole that anybody can create at any time. That like the deep state is actually playing 4D chess with the lives of political leaders and maybe even corporate heads. Who knows, really? But that's you know that's then we enter the world of level of conspiracy. But you know, sometimes Tim Pool can bring that out of you. About this recently. I used to look up to all these adults. They must be so good at what they do. They must be the best of the best. And man, when I'm when I'm older, now I'm, you know, in my mid-30s and I'm like, everyone's as dumb as they've always been. You know, it's just people doing people stuff. You think that you walk into this election center and you're gonna see a whole bunch of experts with their badges and they're wearing gloves and everything's perfect. No, you got some regular guy who's volunteering and he's confused. You get sworn affidavits from some people because they don't know what's going on, and it's just humans. It's, it's not like a well-oiled machine necessarily. It's not like a computer. It's a bunch of people with different perspectives and different understandings and different skills trying to work together. So I think for the most part, though, when you, you put enough people together, you get some really amazing stuff. But you, you'll see errors. You'll see impropriety and stuff. And so I think, you know, especially now with the election, 
one of the biggest mistakes the media is making, which I think could actually lead to serious chaos, maybe conflict, is that recognizing humans are imperfect, you're going to find a bunch of people saying in a sworn affidavit, I saw this thing happen. You can't just ignore that and say, we will do nothing. You, you have to let people know we're doing everything in our power to clean up any potential errors so they view this election as legitimate. I mean, if Joe Biden really does get certified as the winner, he gets inaugurated, but they don't look into this stuff, it would undermine his presidency because you've got 72.2 million people now who have voted for Donald Trump. I think everybody deserves to look at these affidavits or these whistleblowers and just say, you know, is it is it going to change the election? Maybe it won't, but we should investigate. And I, I will also add, too, I think, you know, Donald Trump's legal path to victory right now, it's almost like he's dangling fraud over on like to, to his left. And you got all the media saying there's no evidence of fraud. You got the activists saying fraud. But Trump's lawsuits are about impropriety. His lawsuits uh, in Pennsylvania, at least, is about equal uh, the equal protection clause under the 14th amendment that has nothing to do with fraud it has everything to do with they didn't count ballots properly or they created an alternate track of ballots or they violated a court order so while you've got these people over here dancing around screaming fraud trump is actually taking a legal battle over whether or not he can disqualify hundreds of thousands of votes due to you know failure to uphold election standards and i told you didn't i that it's not Trump has like multiple litigations over different things and, and it really depends on the state. So like Tim Poole focusing in there on the 14th Amendment in Pennsylvania is anecdotal because it's specific to Pennsylvania. Each state seems to have a bit more uh, different nuance um, situation going on. Even some of them have, you know, um, Senate races being recounted and not necessarily anything depending on what the president is doing. It's just they're, they're so um, I don't know. They talk beautiful nonsense in almost um, coherent ways. And I feel like the problem is, is that they're trying to reach complex issues simplistically. But the simplistic has a bias, whereas the complex does tend to lean a little bit neutral. And you can't really believe that because there's always like interests in mind that's why that's where the bias comes from is because of uh either personal or group interests so it's just i don't know i don't know if they're actually like if right-wingers do these like mental gymnastics um to just actually believe in the world that they do or if it's uh you know pure manipulation and grift i don't know maybe a mix of both I think there's also something else going on here too, which is that because we always live in the stupidest possible timeline until we break down into these binary positions, the, the positions have now become on the right, voter fraud is widespread. It is in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of votes. And on the left, there's no such thing as voter fraud. I've never heard of this voter fraud thing you're talking about. Voter irregularities don't exist in the slightest. And it's amazing how those positions completely reversed from about a month ago. When a month ago, all we were hearing from Democrats is that Donald Trump was personally going around and burning mailboxes in order to prevent people from <laughs> depositing their votes because he was that committed to voter suppression. He had Louis DeJoy screwing with the machines so that the votes wouldn't be properly delivered or counted. He was defunding the post office. And now everybody who was saying one month ago that the I mean, all of those were true, except for the hyperbolic burning them down. Um, the USPS did just go around picking up um, 
drop off boxes around counties. So, you know, they took a situation that was real and detrimental to to democracy, blew it up hyper uh, hyperbolically, and then equated the other two actions that Trump did to weaken the USPS. Um, just alongside that same kind of uh, hyperbole and exaggeration. Uh, I don't understand how anybody could actually think that these two care about democracy when they're willing to laugh at that situation. Back the post, bro. Back the post. The election was going to be totally screwed up. Is now saying, look what an amazingly clean, unbelievably awesome election we had. And everybody a month ago was going, you know what? The election's probably going to be okay. They're all like, God, that was just the worst, most fraudulent election I've ever seen in my life. You know, you know what's crazy is we, when we did the primaries where we had these mass mail-in voting, we had a massive amount of rejected ballots. I think the Washington Post had like 500,000. Where are all of those right now? That, that's what I was wondering. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't we be getting these same reports we got from the Democratic primary? We're not getting those. So I think you got human error. You've got, you're going to get some level of failure. Hmm. But I think you hit the nail on the head. There's, I think there's the problem there is that, like, um, for the most part, we're not going to, like, all of that article is just kind of sitting back there. Like, as yesterday's um, podcast, I tried to um, uncover a bit of how much suppression had been going on. Um, and it, again, it varies by state. And to gather all of that information in 2020... It, it's not that viable. We're more more likely to get that information in 2021 or after. Um, to think that we're gonna get like all the results of the election, like the the full scope of how many votes weren't counted across the entire nation is just kind of ridiculous. But you, I don't know, you could probably do it through uh, certain state searches. I did find uh, that thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, I can't remember exactly, of Texas ballots um, were invalidated. So, um, it just, it, it really depends. It really depends. And it happens every election though, too, is that, you know, even if you did a write-in, if you did a write-in incorrectly, it can be invalidated pretty quickly just because of the way you bubbled in or, you know, signed your name or there's a lot of different issues. Um, and for 2020, we're going to have to wait for that information to come out before we just come out with baseless accusations constantly. Allegations only lead to conspiracy theories, unless you have substantial evidence to finally back up with a final answer of proof. Weird tribalist polarization that we see, and it's happened in other places in the world when you get people... I don't, I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to call any specific regions out, but there are some instances where you're like... How does that one group believe the exact opposite of the other group when neither position makes the most sense? So I, I think a better real, real world example is when COVID first hit the US, I knew a bunch of conservatives saying, get your masks, like you, you gotta wear your masks. But we were seeing you know, Fauci and the, I think uh, the Surgeon General saying, no, 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 don't, don't get masks. Then it completely flipped. Now you see videos of you know, Trump supporters saying, I'm not gonna wear a mask, I shouldn't have to. And you've got people on the left saying everyone should wear a mask. It seems like for tribal reasons, somehow it flipped. Just whatever you say, I'll do the opposite of. So you're really, I want to reverse course here and kind of provide some background on you for people who may not have heard your show or, or, or seen your YouTube videos. So you're a really heterodox thinker. You don't really fit into any box. People will call you on the left. People have called you progressive. People have called you right wing. It all depends on who is doing the characterization. So why don't we talk first about sort of how you came to do what you're doing right now, and then we'll talk about how your political views were formed over time, because they, they do seem to, to move and evolve over time in, in a way that's really unique in the space. So first, I think that you know, to, to talk about you know, kind of how you came to prominence in this, in this space in the first place, uh, my, my first 
experiencing some of your stuff was during the Occupy Wall Street protests, when you were the only person who was out there actually taking footage and covering that stuff. Um, but how did you get started in this area? Well, it started with Occupy Wall Street. So I had been doing nonprofit work. I had, you know, I've been hanging out with hackers, and this was back in like the days of Anonymous and some other hacker groups. And so the, the big core ideology behind what we did and why we did it, and it was mostly other people, I wasn't super active, was making sure people had access to information, be it get them the internet or give them the key details as to what's going on. And then all of a sudden you had these journalists say, well, that's journalism, you're sharing information, you're disseminating that stuff. So for me, I ended up on the East Coast. And then when I saw Occupy Wall Street happened, I was just some, you know, I had just left California. I'm just some guy who's skateboarding and making videos. And I decided to go and start filming, eventually start live streaming. And while I'm streaming, I'm giving my thoughts on what's happening and essentially doing this raw live commentary. I had this big moment where I did a live stream for 22 hours straight. People were like running up to find me to give me batteries to keep it going. And then I started just covering conflict and crisis. From there, I went from some guy who's live streaming these protests to actually working for Vice. And being, I was the founding member of Vice News, the, like the actual vertical, where I went on the ground to various uh, countries, you know, like Venezuela, like Turkey, Brazil, went to Egypt, watched the revolution happen. And I was just covering hmm. the conflict and crisis stuff there. Eventually, the, the conflict and crisis came to the US. So I ended up working for a company called Fusion. They, they started out trying to be like Vice. And this was, at, this was at a time, this was 2014, when these companies all started getting super woke. I've never been particularly interested in, you know, the weird cultural far left stuff. Even though I saw it at Occupy Wall Street, I was like, I think that's kind of ridiculous. So I ended up working with this company, but within seven or eight months, they got a new editor in chief. I don't really know what he means by like woke stuff or if he's talking about like SGW and the whole, uh, I don't know, politically correct culture. Um, but I, 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 uh, I think we just hit the nail on the on the head there that Tim Pool is a social conservative, which is uh, it's fine for the most part, but it also means the denial of certain existence um, of peoples. So it's just I find that fascinating. I just found it fascinating. That's all. All of a sudden, everything they're doing. Uh, a classical liberal social conservative doing is woke. So they essentially put me in, you know, what we call golden handcuffs. I was getting, I was paid really well to work for this, you know, Disney company, but they didn't want to use real, like on the ground conflict reporting because they wanted to do video segments about, you know, woke stuff, I guess. But ultimately my contract ended. I started doing my own YouTube channel and I started by actually traveling around. So I went to Sweden. I uh, did a two week, like daily vlog from Sweden, interviewing people, seeing what was going on. This was when Donald Trump did that, 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 there was that famous moment where he said, last night in Sweden, you see what happened. And the media went nuts. That was a crazy moment for me because all of a sudden, mm. I had my colleagues from Vice who used to help me go to these countries messaging me saying, don't go to Sweden to cover this story. And I was confused, why wouldn't I? Like I went to Egypt, I went to Ukraine, I went to a bunch of countries. No, 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 but don't do this one, Trump's lying. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about Trump or what he's talking about. I just heard there are some claims about, you know, refugees and crime, I'm gonna go and investigate it. And that was, they got really, really mad at me. And that was when I could see like this weird split starting to emerge. So from there, I come back to the US and I started covering the conflicts we see on the ground in the US, you know, Proud Boys, Antifa, that kind of stuff. And of course, what do I see? 99% of the time, 
You get some Trump supporters waving little American flags and Antifa shows up and attacks them. I would report it. Antifa would get really mad at me. So they started threatening me, doxing me. I, someone posted a photo of my mom at one point. And so that was like, for me, I think it, I already had some you know, personal biases going back to my upbringing in Chicago. But now it's all I'm trying to do is cover what's happening on the ground. And by telling the truth, these extremists and like Antifa type people were attacking me and threatening me. And that, <laughs> Antifa like people. I mean, was kind of, uh, I guess to be expected. But it did, it did set me off on a path where, for one, I couldn't actually go on the ground anymore. So I, I slowly stopped doing it because it was getting more and more dangerous. So then I started doing more and more news commentary and analysis to kind of make up for the fact that I couldn't be on the ground, you know, aggregate more of the people who actually are doing the work. And I kind of feel like it's not a completely uncommon track for journalists to go from field reporter and then eventually later in their career, they, they find themselves as like a news commentary kind of person. And then uh, once it just became completely obvious that, you know, it, it happened when I went to Portland. I had some guy chasing me around yelling like while I'm trying to film. And I'm like, okay, clearly I got, you know, too many people know who I am. They're seeking me out. They're, they're causing trouble. They're trolling or they're actually attacking me. So I'm going to have to stop coming to a lot of these events and then just report to the best of my abilities from the desk. I just started increasing the amount of work I started doing. I started doing multiple segments per day. Now I think I do um, an hour and 45 minutes of direct commentary and I do a total of like, uh, I, do, I do an additional two hours of a live podcast show, which brings me to this position where now I'm kind of this, I think as you mentioned, like a heterodox individual, don't really fit necessarily anywhere. Uh, although I think I've been classified as like cultural right wing, whatever that means. But my political positions- are kind of just like where Democrats used to be. It's, it's a weird position to be in. I, I will say, I think the easiest way to explain that I'm not orthodox, I suppose, in some capacity, like I'm a heterodox personality, is whenever they try and smear people who are, you know, like, like right now you got a lot of people on podcasts and YouTube, for instance, that are saying the election's not over. You get these articles saying, or CNN, for instance, you've got the, the right-wing media lying, claim the election's not over, but they never mention me. Because if they do, they show you like, you know, my, my segments are actually fairly, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say bland, but uh, the, the, the joke is that I'm a milk toast fence sitter. I will tell you, we have a sworn affidavit from numerous, you know, poll watchers, but I'm not going to come out and scream the election was stolen and, 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 and Trump won. I'm just going to say we should investigate this. It doesn't really work very well for the mainstream media to smear me as some kind of conspiracy theorist when I don't make an assertion beyond here's a fact. So... So, uh, Tim Pool here explaining his methodology. Um, find it fascinating, fascinating that, you know, he says, oh, I present here is fact. Um, but you know, his facts are usually pretty hollow, um, especially when you're following the whole investigation in an election, uh, situation that's going on right now. The most of that's hollow. Um, and presenting a fact and saying it's a fact and it proves you right about the conspiracy that you believe in, um, you know, that's that's very conspiratorial thinking. You know, conspiracy theorists always think that they're dealing with everything that they're dealing with is fact. So I just find that a bit fascinating. The main thing that had kind of stuck out to me is that he called himself, and from apparently what others say about him, is a milk toast uh, fence-sitter. Um, because he's not going to scream that the election was rigged, but 
just because you're not going to actually like scream that the election is rigged, but you're just going to slowly kind of push people in that direction. Um, you know, maybe that's because you know that you don't have to scream because that's other people's job. Your job is to nudge them in the direction of the people screaming that this is a stolen election. So, um, still complicit. Oh, ultimately I find myself in this weird position where for one, if you go to like my, my flagship channel with the most subscribers, it's like basically the media is trash and the Democrats are too. So then people see that and they say, Tim Pool must be right wing. But then when it comes to actual policy, like my politics are probably, you know, independent center left. And I disagree with conservatives on a lot what? of core issues that result in Trump's. What? He completely backed Trump's second term agenda. Like he basically said that he voted for Trump. Center left voted for Trump. Joe Biden is center right, and he couldn't even say that he voted like that. He wow, center left. What does that even mean in Tim Pool's world? Oh man, I can't imagine because in my head that means like Barack Obama, which you know, not really. He's he's a centrist, center left. Was Tim gonna vote for Bernie? I don't think Tim was gonna vote for Bernie. Uh, I don't. I can't remember. I don't think I was following Tim hard enough to know for sure if he was ever gonna vote for Bernie. Porter's getting yeah. mad at me. It's a weird position. I don't know, but ultimately that's where I'm at now. And then I guess at some point Ben Shapiro hit me up and asked me to come on his show. So, <laughs> so like, he's he's he admitted that he's like been called cultural right wing which you know to me it sounds like he's social conservative he wants his uh society to be held down to certain traditions um what i find pretty fascinating here is that he said he was center left did he that's so weird man i'm, I'm just i'm really broken by it socially conservative seven center center left and he calls himself a classical liberal, which just basically means a libertarian in America's speech. So I'm, I'm flabbergasted right now. I don't know what to believe. And he, Tim Dunn shattered my world view with his own perspective. Yeah. So I, I want to talk with you about, uh, you know, you obviously were covering Antifa. You've covered in detail uh, Black Lives Matter. And you mentioned sort of the, the woke phenomenon. I want to talk about the phenomenon. And then I want to talk about what I think is actually a more important issue, which is the meta phenomenon of how, how social media and the media refuse to cover this phenomenon, how, how yeah. they have decided that certain narratives are worth, worth cultivating and certain narratives must be barred. Certain narratives must be suppressed, uh, because to me, that is the, the scarier uh, the, the scarier phenomenon is sort of the mainstream deciding what we can and cannot see. There, there's there's the radicals, and they're scary, but they're kind of a small proportion of the population. And then you actually have like this mainstream phenomenon of attempting to quash any discussion of the radicalism, which effectively makes them enablers. We'll get to that in one second. First, let's talk about simple. <laughs> I can't believe Ben can just like transition into an ad like that. Like he's setting up the segment and then instantly transitions into an ad and then he'll inch like Tim pool has to listen to the whole thing, believe in right wing integrity. And then they just immediately get back onto talking here. Let me, let me fast forward through this. Oh, wow. What a horrible way to run a podcast. 
to just like jam in an advertisement like that. Like I listen to podcasts that are like, hey, we're going to take a quick ad break just to let you know this isn't going to be that awkward. And then they switch. But like this was so <laughs> weird. Like uh, we're going to talk about the state of America. But first, uh, have you thought about your policy? <laughs> what is this show really for? You know? Is it to sell insurance policy masqueraded around political intellectualism? Maybe. Or is it political intellectualism that happens to sell insurance? <laughs> I'm sure there's like at least one or two more ad pivots from Ben in this. Era, allied troops. <laughs> Antifa are alternatively Tifa. So, so you cover I'm Antifa rewinding it to get it. It's nice and important by the media. Right. So let's talk about Antifa. So, so you covered Antifa on the ground. We've been told by the media that Antifa are alternatively World War II era allied <laughs> So let's also remember that, you know, uh, Antifa was a big subject yesterday in America, especially on Twitter, uh, dealing in with the MAGA March because MAGA March had Proud Boys who are a neo-fascist group inside of America. I'm sure the Proud Boys weren't the only ones there. I'm sure there was, you know, Patriot Prayer. Uh, what was what, what was that one? People's Liberty, um, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. I'm sure there's plenty of groups there that weren't just the Proud Boys. But the Proud Boys were stucking out like a thumb because of their specific uh, iconography and their outfits. And their videos tended to go viral because a lot of them ended in street brawls. So let's just, you know, kind of hold in mind that uh, the day before the recording of this, Antifa and fascist Proud Boys were uh, a part of trending news. They were in the zeitgeist. They were in the frontal lobe of public consciousness. So um, let's just take that into consideration before we get into the right wing narrative of what is Antifa. Troops storming the beaches of Normandy. Uh, yeah, we've been told hopes. by Joe Biden. I like that that joke though that he just made. Let me rewind it real quick. Antifa on the ground. We've been told by the media that Antifa are alternatively World War II era Allied troops storming the beaches of Normandy. Uh, yeah, we've been told hopes. by. Which I think is uh, like actually factually true. Um, although back then America wasn't the uh, perfect anti-fascist nation, when it came down to the wire, um, we fought alongside communist USSR, uh, Soviet Union, uh, in order to defeat fascism. So in a way, the nation was anti-fascist at one point. Um, and so the soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy were, uh, if you know, they were into the mission of defeating Germany for the betterment of the world, they were anti-fascist. Um, the thing about anti-fascism, uh, the, the political organization, uh, movement ideology, right? Um, not necessarily a single organization. Rose City Antifa is a single organization. Antifa itself is the idea of anti-fascist political organizing. Um, that began in the early, t well, Eight, you know, late 1800s to early 1900s, um, where we would actually see, um, what was I going to say? Uh, you know, fascists coming out into the streets and doing their protests or their uh, social movements and then being met by anti-fascists out in the streets to counter their protests and hoping to either drive attention away or to actually fight them back into their caves. 
Um, it just kind of depends on what group, what situation, what country. It's all very nuanced and varied. It's, uh, it's you know, pretty young in America. It's, it's, it's young. Um, we've, you know, had our flirtations with fascism and our flirtiest yet was with President Trump. But um, it's a it's it's a very complex situation. But I find it very funny that they laughed at actual anti-fascist political organizing, such as defeating Germany in the 1940s, as a joke. <laughs> Joe Biden, that they are not, in fact, a, a group, that they are, in fact, just sort of a, a philosophy, you know, sort of like sort of like cubism or something like an artistic movement. Well, what exactly is Antifa since you've covered them on the ground? It's a, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily wrong to say that they're a movement or an idea, but it's the individual cells that we're talking about. I think what you're talking about and what they do is the mainstream media uses a semantic argument to try and act like they don't exist. So to put it simply, Antifa is the symbols they use, the ideology, Typically, find, uh, you'll, you'll find many of these people are authoritarian communists. And I, I'm not trying to exaggerate or do some stupid, oh, they're all communists. No, like they're, they're literally, they believe in authoritarian communism. But uh, uh, I would definitely say that anti-fascism is in a sphere of like diverse um, ideologies. I know there are tankies, <laughs> you know, the tankies are out there and they love their... Uh, their dictate dictatorial proletariat revolution um but that's not the way that the proletariat revolution is uh, necessarily supposed to kind of shake out when you deal with real socialism or at least the communism that i had come to understand from the manifesto um by the complete abolition of the state and nothing but the workers democracy uh power to the people essentially um so yeah uh I don't think all of them are <laughs> uh, authoritarian communists. I think a lot of them actually, I feel, I feel, and this is not a fact, that most of them are probably more alongside the lines of anarchy. Uh, they're probably closer to anarchists in the majority of Antifa, uh, mainly because of the whole flirtation of fascism has been happening in these places with very large governments. Uh, so, you know, the antithesis of that is to have a very decentralized government that has power spread throughout people, not necessarily throughout institutions. I'm going, I'm going into the forest and I know y'all want to stop and look at one single tree and just think, okay, this is, this is the whole, the whole of the woods, but there is just so much complexity and nuances and moving parts to every piece of machinery that goes on in this planet to say that one piece of the gear is the representation of the entire machine is just, uh, it's lazy thinking and it kind of hurts me because I think as a species we have to start encompassing much more uh, nuanced thought in order for us to completely understand that life is too complex for us to shorthand decide uh, fates and lives. I, I went on a tangent there. I went on a tangent there, but it's just very frustrating for me when um, people are misrepresented in, uh, in a bad faith manner. It's, it's rooted in, you know, World War, uh, pre-World War II Germany, Weimar Germany, where you had the Communist Party had their anti-fasciste action, and it was challenging the fascists. They use the same symbols. They create small individual groups. With uh, I don't think they were the first dealing with that. 
was it in Germany? It's kind of hard to tell, man, because I thought maybe it was in Spain was one of the first Antifa groups. So I'm saying it's a it's a, it's an ideology and not necessarily a group. Yeah, I guess 1932 Antifa uh, action conference. Hmm. I thought it, uh, Spain had actually had the first anti-fascist mobilization, but... They say no wrong. leaders. They have leaders. They do. And then they coordinate for various actions. They call them nationwide. So ultimately what you have are political zealots who believe in the use of violence for political gain and terror uh, for political gain. What they'll do is they'll tell you, and they'll have allies and media tell you, there's no such thing as Antifa. It's not a group. Well, that's a, a semantic manipulation. They're, they're playing a game here. If I say Antifa came out in Portland and attacked people, I'm talking about Rose City Antifa. It's a legitimate group. They have membership. They have membership drives. They put out, you know, flyers on the, or they put out a website saying, here's how you join our group. They have their own merchandise that says Rose City Antifa on it. So it would be like... Yeah, but it isn't this homogenous one blob Antifa that you... Uh, are claiming it to be like Rose City Antifa isn't a chapter of a larger Antifa that has like an actual figurehead at the top who who organizes all of these chapters. They are their own organizations that focus locally. Um, so it is very decentralized. He is trying to make it sound as centralized as it possibly can be so that everybody fears the same boogeyman. No, the media is trying to use uh, wordplay to trick you into believing that these various groups don't exist. Because if I said, you know, I went to Portland and Antifa came out, then I went to Boston and Antifa came out, they say, aha, see, that proves it because there's no connection between those two groups. But it's the general idea is they, they, they hold that same ideology, wearing all black, they use similar tactics, they use the same symbols, and they typically agree with each other on their cause and their, you know, their means to the end. So you actually have a loose-knit group of various cells that coordinate with each other, using violence against their political opponents, for the most part instigating it outright, to, to, to win. And it works for them. You know, the, the example I often give to people, why is it that social media is so willing to censor right-wing individuals, but Antifa is literally organizing violent riots online, even probably right now. They've been doing it, you know, all year and, and for the past several years. Mischaracterizations of protests. Um, you know, a lot of groups and organizations have been organizing protests online through social media. And the characterization and categorization of those protests do not happen beforehand. Uh, a city, a state. Uh, police force will label a protest a riot or an unlawful gathering, what have you. Um, nobody goes on Facebook and says, we're going to uh, have a riot tonight. Please bring your Molotovs. 
But we know we're dealing with people who don't acknowledge that 93% of the George Floyd protests or protests since George Floyd in the name of Black Lives Matter and defund the police. 93% of those have been peaceful protests. 7% which have been circulated and highlighted through social media and large media conglomerates such as Daily Wire and as independent journalists such as Tim Pool have been circulating through the 7% of those uh, deemed riots and violent, um, those are what they're focusing on. I just, I, I, I have to put it in that manner because he is uh, taking out of context what the protests have been, which has incited more violence from right-wing militia groups or uh, street gangs because they perceive people who are protesting in the name of Black Lives Matter or defund the police as enemies of the state. They are trying to destroy their America, and so they must defend themselves. Um, that's the whole characterization that they've been doing since May 25th, and it's utterly uh, disgusting, and I am not grossed out anytime I come across it. And it's simple. Antifa in, say, San Francisco in the Bay Area They'll show up to the to the headquarters of these big tech companies and they'll trash the place. So these companies say, well, well, you know, leave them alone. But there's not going to be a conservative group marching to Twitter HQ with pitchforks and torches. So long as big companies keep giving Antifa what they want or showing them their tactics work, they'll keep doing what they do. As for the loose-knit nature of what they do, it's all on purpose. The reason why they don't have an official nationwide organization is very, it's, it's, act, it's actually really easy to understand when you look at the Proud Boys. And also there was a uh, recent study that refutes what he's saying. Um, September 26, 2020 from Politico, why the right wing has massive advantage on Facebook. Um, October 29th, 2020 from vice.com. Facebook has always been right-wing media. Uh, uh, San Francisco CBS local reports, Facebook fires employee who shared proof of right-wing favoritism. This is local news. So it might not have, oh, it was on Buzzfeed. Uh, Facebook fired a senior engineer this week who collected evidence showing the social media company giving preferential treatment to right-wing accounts, according to a report from BuzzFeed News. The engineer, who BuzzFeed did not name, uh, recently posted internal information on Workplace showing that, quote, Facebook was giving preferential treatment to prominent conservative accounts to help them remove fact checks from their content. Facebook later deleted the post, and on Wednesday, the company fired the poster. Bump, bump, bump. Mount. Uh, let's see. That was San Francisco CBS. Um, I guess Zuckerberg said that it's wrong to consider Facebook a right-wing echo chamber, so we can take his word. Um... Uh, techdirt.com said Facebook is so biased against conservatives that Mark Zuckerberg personally agreed to diminish the reach of left-leaning sites. Do, 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 do. 
do so basically what they're reporting is not uh consistent with anybody except for the commentators who just say it because they are the ones who are temporarily banned or suspended for uh posting the stuff that they post because why oh it has a lot to do with misinformation hmm boys Obviously, the Proud Boys and Antifa are not the same things, but there are similarities in that you have these, these groups that fight on the, on the ground. The Proud Boys have a chairman, Enrique Tarrio. Well, they've banned him from dozens of banks. They've banned him from all Wait. different platforms. You give someone a leader, they use that to actually try and discredit the rest of your group. Antifa knows this. I've actually talked to people going back to Occupy Wall Street who have straight up said, no leaders. As soon as you put someone up, They'll smear, they'll character assassinate. So it is on purpose, they say they don't have leaders. However, law enforcement knows who the individual cell leaders are, I would imagine. And I <laughs> All right, so, I mean, I'm pretty sure earlier in here, he said that Antifa has leaders. Let's see. No, all year and, and for the past several years. And it's simple. Antifa in, say, San Francisco. I rewinded it. They'll show up to the to the headquarters of these big tech companies and say, Hold on. you know, their means to the end. So then an Antifa came out. They say, aha, see, that proves it because there's no connection between those two groups. But it's the general idea is they 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 hold that same ideology, wearing all black, they use similar tactics, they use the same symbols, and they typically agree with each other on their cause and their you know, their means to the end. So you actually have a loose-knit group of various cells that coordinate with each other, using violence against their political opponents, for the most part, instigating it outright to 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 win. And hmm. it I I thought he had said that he that the the Antifa had leaders. Then I was like, well, then if they do, then how come you can't name one? Um, that must I can't find that exact timestamp. But he at least acknowledges that it's loose-knit, um, which is another way of saying decentralized. It's a decentralized organization, um, not necessarily even that organized because they're focused on their local chapters. And of course, they're able to agree on their uh, their goals or even what their mission statement is because it's anti-fascism. It's pretty fucking simple. Uh, anti-fascism has no reason to exist other than to anti the fascism. Conservative group marching to Twitter HQ with pitchforks and torches. So long as big companies keep giving Antifa what they want or showing them their tactics work, they'll keep doing what they do. As for the loose-knit nature of what they do, it's all on purpose. The reason why they don't have an official nationwide organization is very, it's, it's, it's actually really easy to understand when you look at the Proud Boys. Obviously, the Proud Boys and Antifa are not the same things, but there are similarities in that you have these, these groups that fight on, this, on the ground. The Proud Boys have a chairman, Enrique Tarrio. Well, they've banned him from dozens of banks they've banned them from saying that's the that's one of the key differences that if you like kind of just take a second to think about is that antifa represents that socialist and anarchist kind of ideal is that you have a leaderless a horizontal hierarchical system of decentralized organization uh the proud boys have a figurehead they have an authority they have a person on the top which represents authoritarianism so you have authoritarianism on the other side of anarchy. Um, and we have very, 
uh, I don't know, different interpretations of that word in America, depending on where you sit on the political spectrum. But um, I think that what Tim Pool just did perfectly was actually show the ideological differences between these two groups by trying to paint how they're smeared in the media. Uh, wow. <laughs> From all these different platforms, you give someone a leader, they use that to actually try and discredit the rest of your group. Antifa knows this. I've actually talked to people going back to Occupy Wall Street who have straight up said, no leaders. As soon as you put someone up, they'll smear, they'll character assassinate. So it is on purpose they say they don't have leaders. However, law enforcement knows who the individual cell leaders are, I would imagine. And I think some of them got doxxed recently. So it's really, it, it's, it's not, you know, their tactics aren't perfect. But I will say the left is much, much better at street level organizing than the right. And so you end up with a media narrative that can't understand what Antifa is or outright defends them on purpose. I think there's there's two things. You've got the activist media that hates Donald Just wanted to acknowledge the thing that he had said about, um, you know, that they, they know how to organize better than the right wing. And I think it's mo mainly has to do with the fact that they can actually get the numbers because popular opinion uh or even popular belief tends to sit on left-leaning uh expansionism these days rather than uh right-wing conservative to regressionism so that's uh why the organization seems to be better and they get better outcomes and numbers i think that has a lot more to do with it than actual uh i don't know maybe we can give more credit to actual organizing and the skills it takes to do so uh, but I just want to say that the left probably sits more in the popularity and hearts of the American people. Donald Trump. And they're or the saying, most people. you know, oh, Antifa is no big deal, but they're saying it because they want to protect Antifa. You then have these local reporters, these people who are probably, you know, they have good intentions. They're trying to be objective and fair, but they can't grasp the concept of Antifa as a group because Antifa has specifically obfuscated what they really are. So you can't report on what they are. Then you get someone like, say, Andy No or Elijah Schaefer, someone like at one point what I was doing, and we can act accurately break it down and report on the ground. They get really angry about that. And we all saw what happened to Andy No, you know, when he was out there in Portland, they physically beat him. They left him bleeding and covered in, you know, milkshake and stuff like that. Those are the people they're really worried about. But long story short, they're, they're radical far left. They typically are authoritarian communists, but not all of them. Some of them might just be... They, they might be like left anarchists. I know there's a big debate over whether or not anarchists can actually be left or right, but they view themselves that way. They'll view themselves as socialists. But the big, the big. I think it's very fascinating though that he can't acknowledge that there's probably some liberals in there that might be a little bit capitalist and that are, you know, that are anti-fascist. But it seems to be like so far left for the most part. But yeah, like I had originally thought is that it's mostly. I mean, I think it for the most part represents like an anarchist, uh, Ameri uh, anarchist to a libertarian socialist kind of ideology with its decentralization. So, um, but he's saying that it's authoritarian communists, even though they uh, absolutely abhor authoritarianism because authoritarianism is essential to fascism. So, the issue I see with Antifa is that you might find someone who will try and lie and justify, no, no, we don't believe in violence where it's self-defense. But these are the narratives they like to use to get away with what they do. And so long as you have these mainstream resistance type Democrats who hate Trump, they won't call these groups out. And that's been something I've experienced going back to Occupy Wall Street, where the peaceful, legitimate protesters 
are told by these groups to respect their, quote, diversity of tactics. It's the, it's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. The idea that you're going to engage in some kind of strategy against a big system, but diversify what that strategy is makes no sense. You want to have a cohesive plan as to how you're going to make change happen. The, the, the reality... What what's fascinating is that he the, the, he hears diversity and instantly thinks chaos. Um, when you can write a plan that has a diversity of tactics, which you know, if you have a plan, you probably have step A, step B, C, D, E, F, G, H. And what if you have like a whole alphabet of strategies? Are they all the same? No, but the, it's all a part of one plan to a goal. So, yeah, him not understanding what diversity of tactics means um, tells me how much he actually understands about political action. Reality is these groups say respect our diversity of tactics because that's code for getting violent and hurting people. And then you get these. Maybe, but I don't think so. Um, because yet again, only using violence, um, that's not a diversity of tactics. That's, that's one tactic. Violence is one tactic in, uh, uh, in, in political action. So just, uh, just saying. Good natured protesters who just want to, you know, wave their little signs and banners and be heard now standing back as Antifa messes with people, knocks them down, starts fires. So. I will say, I think Antifa, for the most part, is a colloquial term we use to describe the far-left extremists who use what's called the black block tactic, where, you know, they wear hoods. I think what's very fascinating there is that he acknowledged that the Antifa is a colloquial boogeyman that they use to move around when they have dissidents that they don't like. You, you, know, how, uh, you know how terrorist is used? It's uh, almost in the same colloquial way as Antifa. Um, because, you know, you can't blame everything on Black Lives Matter as, you know, protests widen uh, on many issues rather than just one. So we better start putting them under one banner now before it gets real confusing for our uh, militant types. Hoodies, they wear masks. I don't know what we'll call them in the future. We, we just called them the Black Bloc Anarchists, you know, 10 years ago. Now they're Antifa. They're still here. They're still rioting. Apparently... Pretty sure they were Antifa back then, too. It's just the diversity of tactics coming from the right wing. The media calling it for Joe Biden did nothing to change their minds. And in fact, I think it's only it's only likely to escalate as if, if we do enter a Joe Biden. Diversity of nomenclatures and an administration, because certainly Joe Biden won't be strong enough to deal with these groups that are pressuring him and attacking him and getting violent. And we already saw this, I believe. <laughs> and they, they can already see the left, like, ready and willing to bully Joe Biden. And yet he was also our candidate to destroy America. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And Trump was a a, a, a punching bag for the, for the far right to uh, move their uh, policies ahead. Maybe. But, you know, if it's true for Joe Biden, then why the fuck wouldn't it be true for Trump? I see it as more of a parasocial, parasitic relationship between either either groups, all of them. Recently, they attacked a DNC headquarters saying F Joe Biden. So anyway, there you go. I, I think I ranted too much on what Antifa is, but we can you know follow up. That's, I think, very useful for people who sort of have a vague idea, but, but not a very specific idea. Uh, and then meanwhile, we've seen 
the media basically decide that you are never allowed to criticize not only Antifa, but also Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter itself is considered to be uh, a wonderful movement. There, there's been a game that, that you mentioned there, this sort of semantic overload that has been placed on the term Black Lives Matter, which, as I've pointed out in my show, means three separate things, one of which is completely unobjectionable and two of which are rather objectionable, one of which is the idea that black people's lives matter, which, of course, everybody agrees with, unless you're a complete piece of human drag. Second, the Black Lives Matter actual organization, which is a far-left communist organization in its inception and openly states its goals. And third, the basic underlying idea that America is systemically racist. Black Lives Matter, unless you're the organization promoting the uh, advancement of Black Lives Mattering, then you suck. You fucking suck. I fucking hate you. <laughs> And it's, you know, any left-wing group in America is going to be painted as some kind of communist socialist manifesto revolution by uh, conservative media. That's just been happening for a while now. That's just how it is. It's evil since root, uh, and that all, ine all inequality is at root inequity, which I think is uh, both counterproductive and false. But we've been told that to even question Black Lives Matter is to itself be be racist, and that if you are to pay attention to any of the fa any of the riots around the country, that's just exaggerating the problem. I mean, after all, only seven percent of the Black Lives Matter protests erupted into riots, which is uh, a pretty shocking. Only uh, that that word only is doing a lot of work in that particular sentence. <laughs> Right. And they also, and they, also they also didn't explain that, I think, of that seven... <laughs> Doesn't make it any less true, Ben. Doesn't make it any less true. Only seven. Out of 90... Out of 100. Seven out of 100. That's, a, that's an F, Ben. You got an F on that one. Percent. There was, like, numerous cities constantly being besieged by this. So they were like... You know, my, I could be wrong about this, but counting one city's widespread rioting as just one protest. But yeah, I think it's funny if you said something like, you know, uh, John Smith only kills 7% of the people he encounters. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. Or or may, maybe killing people is a bit extreme. What if he said, don't worry about Bill. He, he doesn't punch 93% of the people he encounters. Yeah, but Bill isn't every protester. What are, what are, how are we equating the actions of a single person to the actions of hundreds of, honestly, how are we comparing a single person to millions organizing into various groups? It is, this is, no, this is nonsense. This is dumb. Counters, I'd be like, he shouldn't punch any of them. It's really weird how they tried, oh, it's 93% peaceful. I'm like, so you're admitting it's not? Like, that's, that's weird. These are, it's either 100% peaceful or no protests. These are violent riots. And another thing that they didn't mention is that in many of these cities where they say there were peaceful protests, they would separate when the riot happened from the protest and act like, oh, no, this day was, was a peaceful protest, even though the same people were there doing much of the same thing. On this day, the police didn't say there was riots or there was violence. And so it's, it's really difficult to weed through. If they didn't say that there was violence or riots, then there wasn't any violence or riots. What are we, what are we talking about? exactly what's going on but i will say peaceful protests are awesome it's 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 foundational to this country you know what also is foundational to this country uh non-peaceful protests it's uh, god dude i swear i don't like when they actually start getting violent in their protests i really don't know what they're what they're going to use to justify it because all we are is more of that ouroboros right-wing left-wing hypocrisy snake eating itself
um, because they will they will um, d- uh, demonize any action that is done in the name of left wing ideology, and then the left will do the same of anything of the right, and it's just this Earl Burroughs gross partisan civil war cultural war snake, and it's gross all the time, but. You know, they're just unrelenting that even if 7% of the protests turn into riots or classified riots by the state, um, they're still not going to acknowledge that the majority, an overwhelming majority, 93% is overwhelming majority peaceful. Um, They're just not going to acknowledge it whatsoever. Um, the First Amendment Just says denial peacefully, uh, you know, uh, peaceably assemble. And I think it's fantastic when people go out and do so. And to varying degrees, I'm I'm totally cool with even civil disobedience. If they want to block traffic, okay, you get arrested. You get your, your, your fine, your slap on the wrist. You made your point. We heard you. We want to make sure there's room for people to actually express themselves, protest. And so early on, we did see with Black Lives Matter, there were things where they would just lay in the street with... I don't. I find it strange that he uh, he thinks uh, that in the midst of civil disobedience, that the state still has the justification to reprimand those people for their civil disobedience. Honestly, how are you going to stand on the side of freedom if you're going to still allow the oppressor to punish? It's so weird. That's that's a weird logic bubble there. With their hands behind their back, I thought that was really cool. Everybody knew it was coming. They expected it. They avoided certain routes. Then these people went home and they made their point. And that actually benefits them in the polls. It, it generates public awareness as it's supposed to, and it makes people sympathetic. But then we get these, these extremists who think they're, you know, la resistance, fighting against orange Hitler to, like, take down a federal building, which is made of, like, hundreds or thousands of tons of concrete. And they're throwing fire, like, you know, mortar shells at it. It's like they're playing a game. They're live mortar action shells. They're not aware. They're not actually doing anything. But I, I will say what I find funny about, you know, the Black Lives Matter stuff we've seen this past year is they're mostly white. It's, 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 it's mostly upper middle class, suburban, white, young progressives saying they're fighting for minorities. Well, guess what? Minorities are the minority of this country. And we're speaking about black lives. 13% of this country is black lives. So who do you think really has to actually come up and show up? And actually, um, who's the majority that owns the power politically and policy-wise? Oh, white people? So that means they actually have to take more action than black people do in order to change this country. Because they're the ones who hold all the power. Not a great argument. Not a great argument. You end up with these videos where there's two black women walking up to the... Imagine if it was, like, majority uh, black people at these protests. The numbers would... Uh, and I, I, I don't know how I'm going to sound. I don't want to sound insensitive. But the numbers are going to be incredibly low if it was a uh, colored-only, colors-only protest. That would, that, would not, that would not help anybody. It would definitely show uh, solidarity and get a message across. There's no reason that you know, uh, you know, black people shouldn't protest and all of that, but they're going to need as many numbers of the citizens of the people who live in the fucking country they live in, in the communities that they live in. So fuck you. That, that, no, that doesn't make sense. These, these two white women who are vandalizing a building and they're like, why are you doing this? And they're like, don't worry, we're doing it for you. And it's like... There's, 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 there's no intention, in my opinion. You know, when we talk, we, we talk about the three different black lives matter you mentioned. It's mostly used as some kind of shield for radical far leftists 
who are they're they're trying to convince people we're the good guys because racism is bad. But when they go out and they destroy businesses in black neighborhoods, they clearly don't care. When they accuse actual outspoken black people, say Candace Owens, of being a white supremacist, they clearly don't care. They're using race as a shield while they engage in racist or violent behavior. And then they use these, they, it's, it's a really, really clever uh, trick that these leftists do, anti-fascist. You know, we're anti-fascist, therefore if you oppose us, you're pro-fascist. It's like, dude, you're walking around beating people. Then they say, we're, we're for Black Lives Matter. That's our group. If you oppose us, you think they don't. It's like, well, clearly that's not the case. You're going around smashing things and beating people and actually hurting the black community. It's, it's all just clever work. You can, uh, you know, you can be against those, those actions of the individuals who did those things, even though we later found out that the auto zone burning down in um, Minnesota, wasn't it? Um, that was started by a Hell's Angel biker, uh, acting on his own to start chaos. Um, so if you can't support the organizations or the policies because of, uh, a few people's actions, because you can't help but integrate them into the, uh, organizations as a whole, um, you know, then I don't know what to do for you because there's, um, there's never really organizing to riot and loot. It's always organizing for protest and civil disobedience to, you know, kind of cause traffic disturbances and noise complaints. Um, that's where all the protests start. And then eventually, once the cops bring out their uh, state-sanctioned violence with rubber bullets and flashbangs, tear gas, and all of that, then, you know, that starts to create situations of chaos and can lead to individuals um, burning and looting things and it's it hurts the movement everybody knows it hurts the movement and the ones who are most committed to the movements know that that's not the thing to do so them completely discounting and saying i'm not going to listen to anything you have to say because you have to deal with all of that chaos that's going down there you're not taking into account that the state also had its hand in creating that chaos it doesn't it, it, it doesn't just start with with uh them rioting and looting that i remember watching the live streams of that protest it started with them meeting outside of the precinct of the police and then eventually the police coming out with everything that they had throwing all kinds of people all over the place so come on come on play us on a real level here wordplay and i think it's all built upon manipulating the media but that is also kind of the thing though is that if you come out and anti-fascists are out there organizing against fascist uh political movements you see fight videos on the internet and you decide to side with the fascist groups because of Andy knows editing skills and his uh, angle of recording, which he used to, I'm not sure if he still does, but he would like coordinate with, uh, I think it was Patriot Prayer, was it Gibson, Joey Gibson? They coordinated with the, the Cedar Riot. Um, and they, the Cedar Riot actually had those people charged from Patriot Prayer. So, um, you know, there's just a constant obfuscation here um, that actually helps the fascists. So if you're not helping the anti-fascists, then you're helping the fascists. People have to then assume, well, okay, then you have picked your side. They want the media to... I'll, I'll, actually, let me stop. I'll put it this way. I decided I'm going to start an organization called the Weak and Vulnerable 
grandmothers. That way, when my organization of, you know, 30-year-old men go around yelling things, the media will, will report Antifa attacks weakened vulnerable grandmothers. That's like an idea of what they're doing. So it's, 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 it's a trick. Most people just read the headline. They just, they, they don't actually investigate what the story is. So I get people telling me yeah, things all know. the time, like, oh, but they're anti-fascist. They're the good guys. I'm like, did you see the video of them beating the old woman? They're like, oh, no, I didn't actually read it. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the name. Was there a video of them beating an old woman? It's, it's the name, anti-fascist. It's not the action. And the actions are what you need to look for. So, because uh, there was a video of Patriot Prayer during after the uh, the or during the whole Cedar Riot situation in Oregon, um, that they broke a woman's vertebrae, sending her to the hospital. So street actions may result in bloody violence, um, but you always have to look on who initiated, what's the context, what's the motive, what's the intent. You have to investigate. And unfortunately, Tim, uh, Tim Pool isn't bringing us those resources here in this conversation. He's merely here to victim blame and shape caricatures. Just wanted to highlight that because I find it incredibly bad faith and dishonest. I want to talk about the, the broader danger of, of these movements, which I don't think is the actual movements. I think it is the mainstreaming of, of the movements by more mainstream groups, the Democratic Party, the, the mainstream media, and, and social media. Uh, it, to me, what, what's happening in, in a lot of left-wing politics right now, it's almost like the, uh, the stories that you read in the newspapers and, and online about you know, some elderly Hollywood star who's aging and doesn't like aging and so has hired a 20-year-old and is now siphoning off their blood in order to uh, cycle it through their system in the belief that the oxygenated blood will, will make them more healthy over time. I, I feel like right now that's sort of the Democratic Party with the woke and with the radical. Like, well, this is where yes. all the energy is, and we don't want to quash the energy, so we're going to allow that energy to fester, and they'll leave us alone because we mostly agree with them. So long as we direct that energy, you know, at the, at the bad people, at the, at the orange Hitler, at the, at the orange man bad, and at all the conservatives, and at, at all the people online we don't like, well then, you know, they're, they're really, maybe they're overzealous, but they're doing the right things, and eventually they'll grow out of this, and they'll stop messing around with this. It's, it's a really dangerous thing. Yep. It's, it's not going to stop. They, they're, they're, they're playing with fire. And, you know, I, I got I to be honest. I don't even think it's the youthful energy. I think it's Twitter. I think you've got hyperpolarization due to places, you know, so, social media platforms like Twitter. I think Twitter is the worst. It's really hard to get a complex idea out on Twitter. So I've mostly just given up. And I just roll with it. I laugh when people take things the wrong way. It's like, yeah, well, whatever. But someone will put something out. It'll be interpreted, uh, interpreted in completely the wrong way. And what Twitter does is it encourages people to be as nasty as possible. What I see happening is it's also with Facebook. It's, it's you know, with, with keyword stuffing and algorithmic boosting that we see through Facebook. Certain posts that have certain words are more likely to get shares and more likely to appear. I mean, you end up with a very small faction of hyperactive Internet users posting on Twitter trying to get... Again, I think he's missing like just a little bit of nuance to there is that like, you know, overall, we're just missing the impersonal uh, conversation eye contact. You know, we're really just missing the personal touch of actual conversation that can actually lead to personal growth and the stuff, icky stuff like that. Um, Tim Pool just thinking that it's all about um, being a top dog and gratifying the ego, which, you know, probably side effect, probably true. Likes. And so what happens is 
You'll see ri ridiculous stories like uh, there was one from the Huffington Post that said, there may be a video of Donald Trump in an elevator doing something. What is that thing? We don't know. Where is the elevator? We have no idea. And does the video exist? We're not sure. They, they actually wrote that article in a desperate bid, a, a desperate attempt to just write something that will get clicks and shares. Salacious. But they didn't have anything. Did they? Because, like, he's just saying that they did, but there's no article. It's, like, almost like the same thing that he's saying that they did. <laughs> so they just wrote nothing. But what ends up happening is you also get cancel culture. People are rewarded and cheered for when they're like, look at this person who's a bigot. All of a sudden now, we've gamified this process on social media. You get more points. You get more retweets. You get more followers. And, in fact, you can make money doing this. You'll see people say, here's a thread about why Ben Shapiro is a Nazi. And then they'll put at the bottom, here's my PayPal link. Give me money. They'll take everything you say out of context. The more people share it, though, the more misinformed they're becoming. Then you get the... And here's the thing, is that here on Tox News, we don't take anything out of context. It's all right here. It's all right here. Democratic politicians who think Twitter is real life. And they see those Twitter threads and they say, I'm going to campaign on this issue about weird social justice cancel culture. I think for the most part, though, is that like uh, for political candidates and political parties, Twitter and Facebook and all of these social medias could be good polls uh, to get a pulse on their voter base or, uh, I don't know, swing voters or whatever. But uh, sure, Tim. Then you get some, you know, 38 year old mother who's like, are my kids going to school? Why is the guy on TV talking about some Twitter thread? What's happening? I think to an extent, Republicans also fall victim to this as well. I think it's funny when they're talking about Twitter censorship, you see like, you know, Ted Cruz bring it up. I appreciate it because I use the internet, but I have to wonder if we have only about 22% of this country using Twitter and only, I think it's, it's like uh, tw a 10 or so, 8% of those are actually active. It must be really weird to be a regular American turning on the news and then hearing them talk about social media culture war issues that mean nothing to you. Which I think may explain, you know, uh, why the Republicans took so many seats in the House this time around. And yeah, going with that same right wing narrative, even though like Tim Pool has been reporting on the uh, the 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 culture war for a hot minute now, that that's like kind of been his whole shtick with Trump. You know, is that Trump was that fuel to that fire? Um, shouts out to Partigiano two three four. Thank you. Thanks for the shouts out on my flag. It's very syndicalist. You're based for saying so. Thank you. And even why Donald Trump is uh, is 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 uh, losing to Joe Biden as it stands so far, I think regular people are like, I don't care about Twitter. I don't care about these these culture war issues. But I do think, for the most part, it's the Democrats that are mostly susceptible to it, because they're looking for the youth vote. Like you mentioned, they're looking for youthful energy. They're finding it on social media where the young people are extremely active, and instead of telling them, hey. Just because your tweet went viral doesn't mean it was correct or good. They're saying, I'll just go with it and say what they're saying. Tim Pool is alleging here that uh, Twitter and, like, I guess, social media posts are influencing policy creation um, when really it's still like the public thought because what's going out into Twitter and Facebook, it's public thought. Uh, very fascinating. And then you, you end up with really weird policy positions like, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2015 says, we can't have open borders. It's a Koch brothers proposal. That was an interview with Vox. Now he's on the debate stage, you know, just this past year saying moratorium on deportations and decriminalized border crossings. He completely flips on what his principles are 
and, and it's because of the things you, you know, people are posting on social media. It doesn't re represent America. I think it's interesting Trump won in 2016 on a message that seemed to fly in the face of what, you know, social justice was pushing on social media. And it, in my opinion, shows with, with PC culture being one of the big aspects that people cite when they say why they voted for Trump. Regular people don't care about this. Democrats have, have, have walked themselves into a corner. I don't see how they get themselves out now. You see AOC is, is attacking the Democrats saying, you know, the House would have fared better if you just let me lead and be progressive. Now you got Cenk Uygur and the Turks writing a Wall Street Journal op-ed saying, let progressives take over. And I can only imagine that would end up with them losing in the most absurd defeat ever because then the Republican Party... And yet all four of the squad, the, 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 the dreaded squad, retain their seats for re-election. Although... Justice Dems around the country, I think upwards to like 20, uh, all gain seats in the house. They're, they, they really think that socialist policies, which, you know, honestly not true socialist, but, uh, Western socialism of, well, no. Okay. It's dealing with, um, democratic socialism, I guess is the only way for me to put it, which is just the kind that we're getting inspired from Europe. Um, they're saying and claiming that these aren't winning policies. Um, and even the Democrats, establishment Democrats, mainstream cons uh, centrist uh, Democrats are saying this. And uh, they're really just missing the mark here on why they lose their seats to Republicans. Party becomes the big tent. You end up with people like Jeff Van Drew, who was a Democrat, switches to the Republican Party, wins re-election. These, these people don't realize, you know, Ocasio-Cortez may have 10 million followers on Twitter, but those 10 million people don't live in like one city. She doesn't have command over one massive district. She has little bits, little pockets of individuals from various jurisdictions that don't hold political power in those areas. And they're trying to legislate based off of the fact that they've created a community of political zealots on social media that doesn't represent this country, but they think it does because they've gathered in this one online space. So long story short, expect more as, as the aging Democrats don't know what they're doing, as Nancy Pelosi tries to placate the squad and then gives them what they want, refuses to denounce socialism. Once Nancy Pelosi and- I can't even think of a single thing that Nancy Pelosi has conceded to uh, Justice Dems or the Democratic Socialists. Uh, not one. She, she kind of plays around like they're a bunch of adolescent children that don't know what, what's going on in politics and Feinstein and, and, and Schumer and Nadler, once they, they're, they're all out, all that's going to be left is the Twitter politicians, the people who want to be celebrities, who want to do Instagram live videos, get as many clicks as possible. I don't see them legislating. I see them trying to do things that are funny and get them clicks and shares on Twitter and social media. And I think AOC exemplifies, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way, just to make everybody angry. I think AOC is very much like Donald Trump in that she tweets bombastic things, gets a bunch of attention for herself, and she loves it. The difference is I think Donald Trump is naturally like this. I think he, he, he really did have plans and he wanted to do things for this country. And we had a great economy over the past several years. We have these historic peace agreements. And then you have AOC who in my- Historic peace agreements. They were trade deals. They weren't necessarily anything of US interests, but uh, just brokered for uh, Israel on behalf of the United States. my opinion, seems to be just trying to get as many followers 
and I guess attention as possible. The backlash that we saw in the last election to defund the police, to the to talk about socialism, to all the focus on supposed systemic American racism. I think that backlash really did materialize. Uh, I think that there was also a pretty significant backlash to exactly the sort of cancel culture that you're talking about. I think most Americans, you're exactly right, don't turn on the news at night and wonder what somebody said on Twitter, but they do see at their own companies, the ones that they work at, that so many of the elites at the top of our corporate world have decided to buy into the cancel culture mentality where unless you personally post a black square on your Facebook page, you are now called into question. If you if you don't repeat, if you don't see and repeat and believe, then you are now a suspect. And if you say the wrong thing at the office, the cancel culture comes for you. You might find yourself on Twitter one day. So it's not that Twitter is a place for gathering and trading ideas. Twitter is a place for coming after you. And so whoever uses Twitter that way, whoever uses the, the political mechanism that way, I think there's a huge backlash brewing to this because the left has decided that they're going to shut. I mean, I do think that's an unfortunate side of Twitter that you know a lot of users have been focusing on. But I do also believe that it is still a place to kind of exchange ideas. But we are reaching the, the cultural level of bipartisan, not bipartisanship, but partisanship to where there's only the left-right dichotomy and neither of the two seem to agree on the worldview and uh, seem to agree on American values and what our goals should be. So uh, when we live in that kind of world, we have people who are trying to be the winners and trying to create losers. And uh, there's no way for everybody to win in a United States with that kind of dichotomy going on. So while I want to say that Twitter is at fault for that, not necessarily. Um, you know, they do feed into the worst impulses that we have that keep us from having these uh conversations that would strengthen us politically and organizationally but you know that just kind of benefits the ruling class overall who are probably in the margins of wealth around twitter so that's just kind of the the dealio that we have to deal with and we have to kind of find a way to communicate with each other but it doesn't help when we have twitter uh putting us in our algorithmic bubbles that only show us uh the certain type of media and figureheads that we want to see and then we also have right-wing echo chambers and left-wing echo chambers and the cycle continues until civil war two the overton window they're gonna shut it tight speaking of which we will never get from marvel we're never getting us the, the continuation or the finale of civil war they literally just like split over that whole thing and then we just fucking forgot it because we got to defeat thanos what a plot hole they're gonna wish all their enemies out into the cornfield and then they believe that this is somehow going to achieve them a majority. I think that Trump was just the beginning of the backlash. He may not have been a great vehicle for the backlash because he's such a flawed character in and of himself, but the backlash is not going to stop just because, you know, Democrats totally. believe they've defeated Trump. I completely agree. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think to, to kind of just, uh, you know, uh, clarify my point, I think regular people don't care about these specific issues of like white patriarchy and, you know, recognizing your white privilege, but now they're being subjected to it, like you said. So they end up, going to work, being brought into these training sessions, and they don't like it. I mean, it was, it was a trope for so long. We make fun of the, 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 you know, the, the um, sexual harassment workplace videos. It's a, it's, a, it's a comedy bit. But now you've got people actually being forced to live through this, and they are scared of cancel culture. And that's the big problem I see with the Democrats. Uh, sexual harassment training videos were not uh, just joking bits. They were actually uh, for real. Um, workplace harassment was such a problem in America that it became standard for companies to uphold those policies.
it still is pretty bad, so much so that we have the Me Too movement. So as it seems, America has a lot of issues that we don't really like to tend to. And you're looking at a couple of gentlemen here who don't like to tend to those issues because it behooves them not to. They're entertaining it at a policy level as if anybody likes this. I gotta be honest, I don't even think the leftists who participate like it. I think they're all standing in the mob with pitchforks, nervously shaking, wondering which one is gonna point the finger at them. And they're safer in the mob than being the target of the mob. I totally agree with this. And, and this is where social media really does get dangerous, not just because of its ability to, to mobilize mobs. I've, I've stated that when it comes to social media, it used to be that in order to form a mob, you usually had to have a cause. Very often it was a horrible cause, but you had to have at least a point of commonality. And then it was like, okay, let's get together the mob and let's go do X bad thing. Now, social media is just a mob waiting for a cause. It's just a bunch of people milling around waiting for a, it's almost like a, 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 badly, a badly motivated immune system where we'll just identify the cell. Everybody swarm. And, and that, that is a huge problem, obviously. Uh, I'm also deeply concerned about the way that social media has decided that they are simply going to suppress information they don't like. Uh, and this, is, this goes back to the, the points about Antifa and BLM. Uh, you had this, this very famous exchange with some of the big tech heads on Joe Rogan's show where you were just pointing out to them that they have no consistent standards by which they suppress certain people and suppress certain content, that they are just doing this basically out of their ass. I mean, they're just coming up with this policy completely out of nowhere and then just implementing it. But it seems to always skew to one side. It's never as though they make the mistake of, oops, we banned Louis Farrakhan. It's more like, oops, we banned this person. We banned James Woods for a day. I guess we shouldn't have banned James Woods for a day. Okay, fine. Well, I guess we can bring back James Woods. Or you know what? Let's all get together and, you know, Alex Jones, he's been bothering us for a while, so we will all together at the same time decide, just spontaneously, that we are getting rid of Alex Jones. Not because he has necessarily violated our policies, but because we have decided that we don't like Alex Jones anymore. Now listen, as, you, as everybody knows, I am no Alex Jones fan, but you don't just all get to get together and decide that you're gonna change your standards randomly and then ban Alex Jones because you don't like Alex Jones that day and expect that we are going to have trust in your, obje uh, your it, objectivity or your status as a neutral mm, platform for ideas. Mm, it doesn't help that, um, you know, we have the fog of time and memory uh, to obfuscate here what exactly was Alex Jones' situation. Um, but he spread misinformation about Sandy Hook being a false flag shooting it, making it impossible for the families of the victims to go visit the graves of their children. August 6, 2018. This was pretty much the day that he uh, got banned for a bunch of shit. YouTube, Facebook, and Apple's ban on Alex Jones. Facebook said they were shutting down several of Jones's pages for glorifying violence, which violates our graphic violence policy, and using dehumanizing language to describe people who are transgender, Muslims, immigrants, and immigrants, which violates our hate speech policies. Um, Apple does not tolerate hate speech and we have clear guidelines that creators and developers must follow to ensure we provide a safe environment for all of our users. Adding podcasts that violate these guidelines are removed from our directory. So as you can see, they're, they're putting it on the idea that it was conspiratorial, but it must have been something that Jones had released previously that actually, um, had gotten that strike from him. Um, 
Let's see here. Um yeah so um alex jones had been spreading that kind of messaging for years and years and then finally at one point big tech decided to all uh go after him around the same time um and it you know it did seem a little bit weird and coordinated at the time that he had done it um but to be perfectly honest with you, Alex Jones uh, does a lot of unhinged things. Like he, I, to this day, I am very uncomfortable with how Joe Rogan uh, platforms him because he would challenge him a little bit, but he still allows him to get out his messaging to a very large audience. Um, and he wasn't banned for just no reason or just for being conservative. Um, it was for specific things that he would post. <laughs> Uh, causing real world consequences. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the Ben Shapiro and Tim Agree show. Thanks for joining us. But uh, I agree, I agree. Uh, Alex, th think about this. Why was Alex Jones banned from all these platforms? It's because of one thing he said, uh, one topic he brought up, and he brought it up a couple times about Sandy Hook. Because of this, years later, they resurface these claims and demand he be censored from every single platform. I think Jones has been around for three decades. I think he said some really crazy things, especially on Joe Rogan's podcast. But the idea that you could have three decades of work purged from the internet for saying one bad thing on a few occasions, that's crazy. Imagine if you get a scientist who's talking about the importance of you know, mask wearing or um, best ways to prevent COVID, and then you know, if a month later he says some off-color joke, so they purge him completely from social media. All of the important things. Found an article here called "A Brief History of Infowars Promoting Violence on Facebook." Um, let's see, where to go? Mother Jones found six other instances of InfoWars commenters and Jones enthusiasts committing violent crimes, including Boston Marathon bomber Tamerlan Zarnayev, Gabby Giffords shooter Jared Loeffner, and a man who fired a semi-automatic weapon at the White House during the Obama presidency. More recently, a man named Brendan Gilmore posted video of the attacks that killed one and wounded at least 19 more in Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally. Infowars accused Gilmore of being an operative of the deep state and said he was trying to bring down President Trump. I thought that was going to be a more... That wasn't the brief history that I thought it was going to be. Um, uh, there's not a comprehensive list of everything that Alex Jones has done. It's pretty unfortunate. NBC News reports that Alex Jones has a long history of inflammatory and anti-Semitic statements. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there, I, going to Google, man, is so frustrating because how's every article from like 2018, 2019, 2020? There's one 2016 that said the. Uh, 
Pizzagate shooter. Uh, listen to Alex Jones. But I, Alex Jones has had a lot of calls to violence. And that's why I'm super frustrated with trying to Google because it's like, oh, here's all these recent articles. Have you read these recent articles? And it's like, dude, you know that there's so much more to that than just these recent articles. And even as I go deeper, they become more recent. 23 hours ago, 10 hours ago, 3 hours ago, and I'm on page 14. And it's mostly about how uh, there was violence at the protest yesterday. But I'm literally just trying to look for uh, the Alex Jones calls for violence. There was one time when Jones had said that he didn't need a civil war to kill liberals. All right. So let's just let that are gone as well. Not that I'm here to defend Alex Jones's body of work. I'm, I honestly don't really watch it or know much about it other than when, it, when I see those viral clips of him saying kind of crazy things. But the idea that you would eliminate someone from the Internet forever and just over he's i like how they equate getting banned from social media um is like getting removed from the internet he still has a website he still has a broadcast and there's still clips of him going on he goes on joe rogan and he was just recently on tim pool's podcast so he's not erased saying one thing one time or even if it was like three strikes and you're out i think that's crazy you know one of the things that jack dorsey said to me when i was talking to him on the joe rogan podcast was we, we talked about a path to redemption. Never happened. I, it, it's crazy to me that you could break the rules on Twitter and they say you're permanently banned for life. It's like we don't, we don't even do that in the real world for most things. You go to prison, we give you a time limit, and then you can come back later on. They don't, they don't allow that. I think the other really important thing, though, when, when you bring up the uh, you know, Twitter's arbitrary rules is I think one of the big reasons why they're banning conservatives more than they ban the left is because they live in that bubble. They're all very far left in Silicon Valley and, and you know, wherever, where they make the rules. They don't interact with conservatives or even moderates for that matter. So when they have parents who are moderates and they say they're far right or whatever, to them, it's abnormal and it's offensive. And we must remove the offensive things. The best example of this, uh, which I brought up to Jack Dorsey, and this is now, what, like two, two years ago almost, the misgendering policy on Twitter. They said, if you misgender someone, you can be banned. But that's a worldview of a very tiny percentage of people. I was like, you're, you're basically creating a rule that upholds the worldview of 8% of the population. If we go by the YouGov data, then about 8% are progressive activists. The rest... Oh, come on. You're trying to start a civil war with people. You're taking our kindness for weakness. Do you understand the American people will kill all of you? If you want a real war, a 1776, <laughs> I'm not the one that's calling for violence. You're gonna get wrecked bad. I don't want a war. Right. I don't need some, you know, coming of age deal to kill a bunch of liberals. I just can't, but I also feel like I'm in dereliction of, as a citizen of my duty, not saying, we have to start getting ready for insurrection and civil war because they're really pushing it. They will line you and your family up and they'll shoot you in the head and they'll rape your daughters and they'll kill your sons and they'll make your wife work in a field till she dies. You better pray there's not a civil war because I guarantee you, you're the one calling for all this. I guarantee you, son, sonny boy. I hope every one of them that wants violence and war knows this. I'm not gonna 
talk about what people are planning in defense of this, but you just know this. This is a two-way street. They have no idea who they're messing with. It will trigger an extended, long-term, bloody, hot war in this country. A sick part of me, a Machiavellian part of me, actually hopes they bring down Trump because it's going to be bloody and it's going to be bad and it's going to be hard, but it'll ensure our victory long-term. Let me tell you something. 60 years ago, he would be in front of a firing squad in about a month. I don't want to have a big shooting war. I don't want to have to, you know, arrest 10,000 of these people and have trials and hang their asses. But if it's done by a jury and we need to, I'll be there and pull the switch. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, you know, just call for, you know, stuff without actually being part of it. I'd support the president right now moving against these people physically. I mean, let, let, let's be honest. We're in a war. I, I, I would support the president making a military move on him right now. The country's in that big a crisis. We need to go ahead and move. It doesn't mean if down the road we fail to stop this race war. Big horde of people are coming down the street for me and my family. Shooting guns off in the air and burning buildings. I'm going to light up whoever I got to to defend my family. But it doesn't mean I'm going to enjoy it. I'll do what has to be done. That comes from Media Matters. Thanks for getting that clip together. Are not. So if you're telling people this is the real world, do things this way, and you don't realize that you actually represent the extreme minority, well, then you're going to start banning regular people, calling them far right. You're going to say we're not. They're still talking about Alex Jones being banned as if he is a regular person. Biased. We're only getting rid of those who break the rules, but your rules would be broken. Time to bring this shit show home. ...by literally anybody. I mean, if you go to a regular person, uh, a, a, an average person just walking down the street, and ask them about misgendering, they're going to say, I don't know what that is. If they sign up for Twitter, they'll get banned right away. And I've met people who this has happened to. I've met so many people who have only a few, a small amount of followers, maybe a couple dozen, maybe a hundred or so, with their friends and their family, and they'll post something and get banned and have no idea why. We don't live in this far left woke bubble with these people. Now, I think for, for you know, people like you and me, Ben, we, we can see their world. We, we, we watch the news. We see what they're saying. So we get it. Most people don't. And so these rules make no sense for the average person. Long story short, you end up with advertising brands that see how people are behaving on social media and they assume this is popular discourse. These ideas make sense. But they don't, and regular people are confused by them. But once you get advertising agencies buying into this stuff, once you get movies buying into this stuff, it can cause a cultural shift. I am, I am starting to wonder, though, if the get what go broke phenomenon is going to cost, you know, so much money. I mean, I wonder if it has to deal with, like, the fact that, like, you know, movies, music, art, entertainment can move the Overton window just because they're able to, like, actually easily explain and... Uh, analyze and make allegories on these ideas to so that they're more palatable for these companies they realize we can't keep chasing after the woke crowd on twitter i certainly hope that that's the case i think that may only be the case if enough americans are offended enough not to actually go by the products because we, we do have a process of what uh, nicholas has seemed to leave called renormalization happening where you have a small minority that is extremely motivated and everybody else is just not as motivated. And so the small minority can move the entire, the entire train just by basically saying, we care super a lot about this issue and we're going to irritate the living crap out of you. 
And and if you guys just leave us alone, if you just give us what we want, then we'll basically go away. And I think that you're seeing this taken to the extreme. There, there will come a point, however, when I think people are just like, you know what? Hmm. No. It doesn't matter that this... Fine. Hold on. I should be back. This is a quote-unquote minor offense. You you stack up the minor offenses, and eventually you get to this is just one giant basic major offense against my sense of truth and and the facts and and propriety. And I think that's what's happening right now. I think the media have also picked up on the mainstream media, particularly the establishment media. They've picked up on the Silicon Valley bias, and now they are using it to their advantage. They're woke staffers yeah. inside these Silicon Valley outlets, and these woke staffers are running the show. They really are. In the same way that the woke staffers at the New York Times are running the show and getting op-ed editors fired for printing U.S. senators' op-eds, uh, if you talk to any of the people in the top levels of tech, they will tell you that their woke staffers are driving them up a wall and that they are creating all sorts of problems. They're creating liability issues for them, and yet they won't stand up to the woke staffers. And so what you get now is not just the pressure from inside. You have this inside-outside game that, that I've identified since, obviously, I run a, a major conservative publication, and we've had our experiences being suppressed at, you know, at, extreme, at extreme depth uh, by social media. There's this inside-outside game that's being played now, where members of the mainstream media, people like Kevin Roos over at the New York Times, people like Kara Swisher at the New York Times, or Judd Legum, right, where they spend their days attempting to, quote-unquote, ask questions of tech bros that go something like this. Here is a bad thing a conservative said, why don't you ban them? And it's every single day. And very often, it's not even a bad thing that a conservative said. It's just, you guys are helping conservatives. And they tie this all into Orange Hitler, right? They always talk about orange man bad. Facebook got Donald Trump elected. Therefore, that's because you allowed conservative content to fly free on Facebook. Um, yeah, we content. should be a and so just this week, we saw this incredible exchange with Kevin Roos of the New York Times where he tweeted out four headlines. And he said, these headlines are misinformation and they're flying around, they're flying around Facebook. Every single headline was true. All four yep. headlines were true. It was two from Breitbart. It was one from Daily Wire. And I believe it was one from Daily Caller. All four were true. And when I said to him, dude, all four of those are true. Those are not misinformation. He said, even if they are factually true, they can push a narrative that is untrue. And so they are misinformation, which just gives away the game. I mean, we basically have establishment media saying, if you don't mirror our political priorities, you are now deemed misinformation. And we'll use our fact-checking brand to fact-check you. And we will use yep. our power in order to leverage all the social media outlets into shutting down anyone who is not the New York Times. I, I love it because Kevin Roos ran this story on uh, for the New York Times. It was a front page story about how YouTube radicalized some guy to the alt-right. When in reality, if you actually read the story, it was about a traditional conservative who went on YouTube, started watching videos, and then eventually became a liberal because YouTube moved him left. There's a lot of data that actually shows YouTube has a left bias. They don't want to, a lot of these people like, like Roos don't want to admit it because you know, they want power. This guy, Kevin Roos, is an activist. He's, he's not a journalist, and I know him personally, and I can, I can attest to this. When I worked for Fusion, he worked there as well. I think he was the managing editor. There was an issue that came up where there was an unprecedented, I believe unprecedented, um, social media ethics violation that occurred from the New York Times. It was when Ellen Pau was the CEO of Reddit, and she stepped down. The story was breaking news. The New York Times... 
So to skip the anecdotal here, we have Ars uh, Technica reporting researchers have already tested YouTube's algorithms for political bias. Uh, more moderation associated with more hate speech and misinformation, not politics. Um, in August 2018, President Trump claimed that social media was totally discriminating against Republican conservative voices. Not much was new about this. For years, conservatives have accused tech companies of political bias. Just last July, Senator Ted Cruz asked the FTC to investigate the content moderation policies of tech companies like Google. A day after Google's vice president insisted that YouTube was apolitical, Cruz claimed that political bias on YouTube was massive. But the data doesn't back up, back Cruz up, and it's been available for a while. While the actual policies and procedures for moderating content are often opaque, it is possible to overlook the outcomes of moderation and determine if there's indication of bias there. And last year, computer scientists decided to do exactly that. So this article is a little bit, a little bit more comprehensive than the right-leaning narrative that they are spinning now. Um, but I remember that the algorithm is much more focused on viewer engagement, not necessarily on specifically uh, left or right wing. But we have here from June 12, 2019, a user asked YouTube help if YouTube was right wing base. Um, so that's not really going to help us. Uh, let's see, article from Medium in July 6, 2019 says YouTube has a clear anti-progressive bias. Um, what was his name? I think Faraday, Caleb Faraday had a great video of the right wing, uh, alt-right pipeline that he went down thanks to the radicalization of uh, or the use of YouTube radicalizing him. So I think it's just very interesting that they can find anecdotal evidence of when, like, specific misinformation that can hurt, like, as, like, a bunch of people. A bunch of people can get hurt from the man, from the amount of misinformation being pushed by a single right-wing pundit, commentator, activist, what have you. That is the reason why they end up getting punished, so that YouTube and Google and these platforms that are giving them the space to speak aren't then held accountable. So really, they're only blocking people who go above and beyond the standards of, term of terms of service, banning them so that they can save their own asses from looking like that they're uh, in on the whole con or the whole game. So... But, you know, it's all a part of painting that victimhood so that they can be the rough-riding outsiders. Same old stick. Same old stick. But I guess I'm just going to have to leave it there. Um, simply running out of time. This podcast has actually been pretty fucking long. Um, so go check out the rest of the video if you want. There's like 12 minutes left. And I think we've basically gotten the gist of everything on these two's uh, mind going forward throughout the rest of America's existence up until 2024. Um, that's, that's, that's been Tox News for you. We took in the toxicity and we took it well, didn't we? Um, if you have any questions, comments, theories, um, please put them in a pamphlet and spread them around your communities. And I hope you have a very enticing and insightful radical day i have been your host and there will be more and more 
and more and more and more and more and more.